right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and host of Psychology and Stuff, and we have a couple of psych and stuff all-stars for you today. But first, my co-host, social ecologist, incoming chair of the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay, and my friend... It's Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dengis. Wow, I got upgraded. That's I'm your right. friend. Yeah. <laughs> For now, let's see how this goes. Well, All those other <laughs> titles, they mean nothing yeah, as long as I'm your friend. Yeah. I will let you know at the uh, at the end uh, if you're still <laughs> wow. there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> my friendships are always contingent on uh, my, my, yeah. Wow. Be rooting for me, listeners. <laughs> like, yeah. stay tuned to see if yeah. I make it through the podcast. <laughs> wow. How are you? I am terrific. All right. Are you surviving the uh, the fear of coronavirus? Uh, uh, struggling, but yeah. Because yeah. you've got hand sanitizer right here. I do. Here I do. Because maybe later I might be talking about something in a rapid research review. Related to this? Yes. Me too. What if it's the same study? Oh, wow. Okay. We'll see. It's going to be the most rapid research <laughs> yes. review then ever because yeah. you go first. Yeah, I don't have a Tag backup. You're it. Nosies. So, um, <laughs> all right. Very good. So uh, I have to ask quick, did you enjoy Psych Week? We're just coming off of Psych Week. It was pretty fantastic. We yes. had amazing side talks. Uh, we had a psychiatrist international honor society induction and um, we had a a community speaker volunteer night where our students made uh, a large number of tie blankets for Camp Lloyd uh, for grieving children it was a really great week I liked the pictures of the volunteer night especially that was really nice because up in the Mac Hall Sea Wing spread out on the floor making blankets it was cool it was very cool very very good so um, let's see. Let's get into our guests today. So our guests, as I said, are regulars on Psych and Stuff. They've talked about everything from Albert Bandura to the health benefits of sleep. Uh, first, she is a developmental psychologist who runs the UW-Green Bay Child's Lab. She just got back from collecting data in Japan. It's Dr. Sawa Senzaki. How are you, Sawa? Hello. I'm good. I think once before I described you as a social psychologist, and <laughs> then and then yeah. during the episode you said you think of yourself more as a developmental psychologist. Oh. So I changed. No, I think I said I want. I'm always oh. a want to be a developmental psychologist. Okay, that makes more sense. So what do, yeah. what do I call you? <laughs> so. I have a lot of identities. Okay. Wow. <laughs> You're a superhero. <laughs> I love this. But okay. the primarily is probably a cultural psychologist. Okay. But that's Very all right. Good. Yeah. All right. So cultural psychologist, yes. Sawa Senzaki. Very good. How are you? Are you doing good. well? Yes, thank All you. right. So our second guest uh, runs the UW-Green Bay Cog Neuro Lab, where he studies neurodevelopmental of uh, sorry, the neurodevelopment <laughs> of moral judgment, among other things. He's also the architect behind our most recent Psychology Week. He did Ooh. not just return from Japan, but I think he might be going there soon. <laughs> maybe. It's Dr. Jason Gao. How are you, Jason? I'm doing great. The maybe on going to Japan is, you know, very relevant to, I'm guessing, what the uh, rapid <laughs> review will talk about. <laughs> so, yes. Very yes. <laughs> well, relevant link, yeah. And it's also relevant to the work you're doing on the uh, the research project that we've yeah. been talking about. So um, I guess I want to get into it. Like, give us a break, a, a breakdown or a breakdown <laughs> of <laughs> the research you two are doing right now. Or maybe even start at the beginning with kind of the, the work you've done together in the past um, and, and then kind of moving into this current project. 
Yeah, that sounds great. So I've been working on research about cross-cultural um, psychology, particularly focusing on child development. So at UW-Green Bay, we've collected data from children um, and families. I think over 300 children and families in Green Bay area have participated in our studies. Um, and we usually do data collection in Japan, and we look at how child development, cognitive, social, emotional, different kinds of development, and parenting are similar and different between cultures. So one paper um, has been published. We looked at how babies and their parents watch some movies and characters doing some social action. Sometimes they are doing good and sometimes they're not doing so well and how parents talk about those kinds of actions. And we found some cross-cultural differences in the way that the parents talk to their kids. So we are really interested in how that might impact children's actual development. And so actually, Sawa and I had uh, started working on projects several years ago. Uh, just after I was hired here, she approached me, and uh, our, our interests have been similar enough, which is I, so historically I studied developmental neuroscience, also cross-culturally, but in a slightly different way cross-culturally, which is tons and tons of countries rather than a really... Um, interesting two-country kind of argument where we can really get into the, the depths of what the differences in, in culture are like between those two countries. Uh, so during my postdoc and in some of the work afterward, I had done a lot of looking at how the brains of uh, sometimes toddlers and into preschool uh, kids, how they differentiate between good and bad actions of others, how they start to say, so how fast they can make that differentiation, um, to what degree they come back at it. And uh, one of the papers that I had published before coming here had a kind of cool finding that tied exactly into Sawa's work that was, uh, it was completely exploratory at the time where, you know, we were looking at toddlers' brains and we were trying to say, hey, they seem to look different when they're processing good actions of others than bad. Um, but we had also asked parents about their own views on uh, social justice, on fairness, and on all of these things. So kind of getting at parent morality. And it turns out that was already predicting um, the kids that would go back and think more about the pro-social or the, the good character versus the bad character. And uh, I always thought it was kind of a cool finding. And Saul was the one that approached me and goes, this is really cool. You have no idea how cool this is. And so then we sat down and started to try to combine those two and say, all right, well, let's explore this way more. And that's kind of the project that, we, that we've been writing up for years in grants and then now have funding for and are working forward on quite a bit. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to jump in more there. Yeah. Or not. Sorry, you were pulling something up on your phone. I thought it was like you were going to show me what it was. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's all right. So, uh, sorry, were you going to say something? Well, no, it was just there. The grant that I just I could never remember the full title. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do um, I talk us through like what the data collections actually look like? So I've I've had the pleasure of seeing sort of like some examples of it and things like that. But describe for listeners what what do participants do? It depends on the projects that they participate in. Participate in. So mm -hmm. Ryan, you actually have had your children That's participating right. in our studies. That's Thank right. you very much. I'm sure they blew the curve, right? I mean, my kids are really advanced, so that's probably came through the results. Exactly. I'm gonna yes. apologize for whatever harm yes. they did. Skewing that data <laughs> right there. Yep. Outliers. Yeah. 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 Um, our undergraduate 
students are really involved in the data collection mm -hmm. process. So that when a participants come, we go greet them at the parking lot, they walk through to the lab space. We just got a new lab space, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's exciting. Um, families are provided informed consent so that they know what the children are participating and the children, um, we give them a brief it depends on the age of the child. If the child mm -hmm. is old enough, we might give them explanations, and then they say yes or nay um, to participate. And then they do a lot of different kinds of tasks. It might be watching videos. It might be telling stories to us. It might be drawing some pictures. It might be playing some card games. But all of those are typically done with undergraduate students. And so, yeah, that's kind of the data collection. Yeah. Typically takes anywhere between 40 minutes to Possibly like hour and a half, depends on the age of the child. Very nice. And the current projects we're working on are going to include uh, some EEG aspects mm -hmm. as well. Uh, I, I think that's one of the coolest pieces that for both Sawa and I is that asking questions in research is just something that I think drives both of us. It's a, it's a motivating, it's curiosity, it's just fun, it's cool to ask questions that people haven't asked before. But one of the unique things about UWGB or a, a slightly smaller school where there's mostly undergraduates that we work with is that the undergraduates are doing all of this with us. They are, um, well, soon traveling to Japan to do data collection with us. Um, they're also, they're the ones that are learning EEG. They're learning the interactions with the kids. They're doing all of these hands-on things. And that's a, it's a really cool experience to see someone grow from walking in, having taken their first or second site classes in undergrad and going, this sounds really cool, I don't know what I'm doing to, you know, by their senior year, asking their own independent questions and honors projects and whatnot and trying to really drive a field forward. It's a, it's a really cool progression to see. Do you think that using the EEG specifically allows us to know something from children that they are not developed enough to tell us on their own? I, I mean... Because I use it so much, I would argue yes, uh, that it is debatable, though. So one of, the, one of the things about neuroscience is that it's just another set of methods that tell us something different but don't give us the actual answer either. So just like with everything in psychology where I love it, um, but it is, especially in developmental psych that both Sawa and I work in, most of it is correlational. Most of it is very much you, you can't assign someone to be a certain age. You can't assign <laughs> someone to be um, anything else. And so it's often correlational in, in how these are done. And that's kind of the case in neuro as well. EEG allows us to see that their brain seems to be processing something faster or different. Um, it doesn't tell us how it's processing. It just says it's different. And so I think that one of the unique things, and this is actually more... Sawa's technology uh, before I even got into it is, is eye tracking. So when we're starting to build these projects, what you try to do is do eye tracking, behaviors, parents, EEG, and uh, some, some kind of thoughts that the kid is also telling us to try to build a more complete picture. And so I see them all as small pieces of a puzzle that kind of build together to give us more insight into what's happening. Not necessarily the answer, but something closer. Can I just add one more thing? And I'm not a neuroscientist. Jason is, so I could be wrong. <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong. But I think two things that are really cool about looking at those neurological behaviors or development is because, so one is that maybe we can see something the kids are not able to verbalize yes. because they may not show it in their behaviors, but <coughs> there are more development happening in brain that we can't see. And I think that's really neat. But another piece I think that's really interesting is that it might be 
um, sort of opposite, right? So in behaviors, they are doing something that we expect them to do, but maybe some kids are having a harder time to think about what they are doing compared to other kids. So in brain, it might be actually maybe they are more um, thinking harder or task might be more complicated, and those kind of frustrations, those kinds of things can also be seen neurologically. That's actually, so yeah, that's really no, Sawa, that's, that's a really good point to bring up, which is um, the coolest kind of neuro study, if you're lucky enough to have it, is where the behaviors look the exact same, where you have two people who are doing <laughs> the exact same thing at almost the same time, but their brains look fundamentally different when they're doing it, because then that tells you that to get to that exact same, you know, I'm going to share a marshmallow with someone, or I'm going to give some stickers, or we do a lot of giving or sharing kinds of things in the lab. Um, <laughs> And if you can have that same behavior, but it comes from two very different brain processes, that tells you something about individual differences where, yeah, we can observe behaviors, or maybe we can hear what a kid tells us by saying, oh, that's bad. But if we can look at different neural processes, it tells us that they're arriving differently. And if we can, um, so link it to, like in the previous paper I was talking about, how parents themselves think and say, hey, that's actually influencing the way that uh, the amount of effort they put into the same process or something. That tells us something about how, how parents talk to their kids or mm -hmm. um, socialize these processes or, or a complex interaction between the two. And I think often we talk about like neuroplasticity and, mm -hmm. and how that is the, the greatest, and I'm no neuroscientist either, but that it's greatest at a younger age. And I think by telling parents that, like check out like what your behavior how that's influencing kids when their neuroplasticity is the greatest and how much you could um, give to your child mm -hmm. in, in this developmental stage. Mm -hmm. And it's always, it's, it's tricky because yeah, like uh, I, I love the socialization arguments and whatnot. Uh, then part of me as a neuroscientist is looking more towards genetic arguments and going, okay, if a parent and child line up, is it because they have comparable genetics in certain ways? Mm -hmm. Is it because of the way that a parent teaches their child? Or there's way uh, more nuanced versions of this. There's, hey, maybe it's not about morality. It's about the types of, well, you know, a child usually shares some physical traits with their parent. And that means that the world treats you in a certain way based mm -hmm. off of, in a similar way to your parent. And so that's called an evocative gene by environment interaction, but it's you evoke the same kind of environment. And I think it's a really interesting thing to think about, which is it may not be expl explicit training. It, it can definitely be teaching from a parent, but it can also be you look similar to your parent. People treat you similarly. Mm -hmm. The experiences you've had start to govern the kinds of neural development right. that you have across this. And then add to it that there's the explicit training by parents, but then there's also the, the modeling. It's, yes. you know, what they've mm -hmm. watched their parents mm -hmm. do, um, something we've actually talked about a few weeks ago in the Rapid Research Review. Um, Absolutely. So uh, I'm maybe talk a little bit, because I guess there's two things that I want to talk about. But one is thinking about the, the, the videos that you've shown kids, Jason, and some of the research I've seen you do where it's like you've got kids kind of watching an interaction between like a circle and a square or something like that and, and seeing how they respond. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, I can tell a little bit. Or am I making it up? No, 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 that's totally. <laughs> because it did really happen and I'm having so, a false memory right so now. So a lot of this comes, um, there's, there's kind of, there was a school of thought in the late 2000s uh, from a lab out of Yale that tried to take 
traditionally really complex interactions. So you'd usually have pictures of people hitting each other or helping each other or things like that. Mm -hmm. And everyone started to realize, well, you might be able to show that to a preschooler. It's just, it doesn't make the same amount of sense. And the seriousness of a negative action is so present to that kid Mm -hmm. that the difference between a a bad action and anything that's not bad is really what you're looking at there instead of good versus bad. So there was a lab out of Yale, um, the Karen Wynn, Paul Bloom, and Kylie Hamlin was the grad student at the time. They kind of pioneered a newer field in trying to translate this down to infants. And they started by showing videos of, it was a shape that was trying to get to the top of a hill. And then they have another shape come on and the other shape either pushes that character or hinders that character from getting up the hill or comes from behind the character and pushes the character up to the top of the hill, so helps that character. That kind of started this field of taking pretty complex moral interactions and trying to make them way more kid accessible. Um, That lab and now Kylie Hamlin at uh, University of British Columbia has continued a lot of this work in trying to create more kid-friendly aspects. That inspired a piece of what uh, I was doing in my postdoc, actually, which was to take um, my postdoc advisor had been working a lot with adults and had pictures of people doing things to each other, um, you know, pushing, shoving, um, hitting with a baseball bat, which sounds really bad when you're thinking about it with kids. And so we didn't show those to kids, obviously. Just with kids, though. Just Normally, with kids. Yeah. it's fine. Show it's it to adults. They'll, they'll just deal, right? I mean, you're back. the anger researcher. This is the thing, right? This is... Yep. Um, and so we, we started looking at those and trying to figure out a way, and that was kind of the first year of my postdoc, was trying to figure out how do we kind of combine these way more complex moral interactions that are happening in adults with the a little too simplistic interactions happening in young kids to create cartoons. Mm-hmm. And so cartoons are really the thing that a preschooler can vibe with, and that's where we started to create these kinds of interactions where you have a character um, that are doing slightly more nuanced good or bad actions. Um, and that's really what we've carried forward into the work that we've done in the lab nice. now. And do you think that the Sawa in your recent trip to Japan where you were collecting data, do you think that these shapes are more universal then than humans, pictures of humans of yeah. like clearly different yes. races yes, or ethnicities? That's a, that's a great point. So I've done a lot of research with um, children and adults still cross-culturally. So whenever we have any pictures, um, even cartoon pictures of humans, we have to be very careful about the shades of the skin, hair, eyes, any visible things to be uh, uh, familiar to a certain de- to similar degree. And so that's a tricky part. So shape mm-hmm. does make it easier. <laughs> yes. Do you find that um, in your data collection in Japan, and I know both of you have collected mm-hmm. data in Japan, uh, do you feel like there are marked differences in the process and the procedures of collecting data? Or do you feel like kids and parents approach the research process similarly? That's a really great question, and it's it's tricky as a cultural psychologist. Um, one of the reasons why we do research in Japan is because there are a lot of similarities. So the um, educational levels, um, the approach to research, I think kind of what you were asking, yes. um, economically, a lot of things are very similar between Japan and the U.S., yet there are those cultural values and those ideologies are different and parenting strategies different. So Japan is a good, comfortable place to do research because there are many other things that we can't control are typically similar. Um, But 
but I mean, there are still some small differences potentially across cultures. And that's even extending outside of Japan. One of the differences I'd say, but even within the U.S., like there's a lot of variability within sure. populations right. in the U.S. <laughs> yes. too, is uh, it has to do with power hierarchies that are established as well. So the, the degree to which there's an expectation of bringing kids into the lab or that the the university is this you know, high things standing on a rock and, and it's a really scary place. And, and, you know, we've, we've had some, yeah, the, the ivory tower, we've, we've had some of these issues in some previous cross cultural aspects where, uh, when we were in some countries in the Middle East or in Africa and doing this, it's just, there's a power hierarchy where you, you have to, you have to balance coercion with testing. And it's always a fine line of, is just the presence of a researcher from the West um, too coercive in order to do this? And so that's, um, you know, we're careful in Japan, for instance, in having local RAs doing this with local principal investigators and all of this. And, you know, our own students will be doing pieces of this as well. And that, uh, so it's, it's always, I think that's one of the trickier pieces right. I've noticed. Yes. Yeah. My kids are always on board purely for the waffles that are available at the campus cafeteria afterwards. <laughs> so I guess that's... I thought that's, we were randomly serving these in the yeah. lab now. <laughs> <laughs> like, that sounds great. Yeah. Let's yeah. go. You know, what are we going to do? Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast right. If you did, my, my kids would participate in every study. So, you know, yeah. maybe there's the new reward for participation. Yeah. It's just we waffles. were talking about books, but waffles sound way more interesting. They like the books as well. So, I want to talk before we um, finish up about uh, the eye tracking software because you mentioned it uh, a moment ago, and I I will admit to really cool like uh, so I I thought eye tracking software was really cool. I think when Jason, the time you like hooked me up to it, yep. and which by hooking me up means sat me in front of it. <laughs> just so <laughs> clear. Just to clarify, no, there were, there there were no, lots of cords involved yeah. that were not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. If you've seen a Clockwork Orange, it was a little like no. Um, <laughs> So, but he, uh, no, sat me in front of it and put sharks on the screen for me to look at. And I, great. yes, it was a great experiment. Yeah. yeah. No, this is... But I think I realized how amazing it really is that as I, that, that even for a brief moment, if I like looked at something else, how quickly it would register and that it actually, there was a piece of me that found this to be sort of insightful into my own like yeah. it was like a, a biofeedback piece, you know, where I thought like, oh, I'm like, I didn't necessarily realize that I looked yeah. over there, but yeah. that little dot showed me mm -hmm. I did. So right. talk to through kind of how this is used, not in your studies or in general, mm -hmm. like how do people use eye tracking software? What's it? What does it tell us? You know, one of the coolest studies that I've seen, so iTracker software can range in a variety of ways, but the ones that we had purchased on our campus is um, 60 hertz. So that means the refreshing rate, we can see the eye, track, eye movements um, about eight milliseconds, so, right? So it's not even a second, eight mm -hmm. milliseconds. So that's right. really quick. But one of the studies that I really um, liked is typically when we look at eye tracking studies, we tend to think that where people are looking at and how people mm -hmm. pay attention to an image. But this particular study was looking at how children um, use, so they were linking the, eye, so the stimuli, so there's a, like a face, and then this, a face picture is masked with a black screen mm -hmm. on top and once a child starts watching this stimuli where the child is looking at so that it gives a feedback mm -hmm. and 
it kind of scratches off the black mask where the child looks at. So they can move their eyes and then they can show the picture on the screen by doing that. And so they were trying to kind of see if the kid used that feedback and strategy and try to Hmm. recognize the face. And I thought that one was really cool. Oh, that is. It's not my study, but that one was really (laughs) cool. Jason, you showed in a in a class I was watching the the Where's Waldo video, oh, which, yeah. which I think is really like fascinating to watch. It's, I'm sure it's available on YouTube, but there's a, it yeah, there's a great lab out of uh, University of Memphis that has on YouTube uh, a video of Where's Waldo and scenes from Where's Waldo, which is the standard thing that all of us probably did as kids or as parents you, you use with your kids, and. Uh, it's fascinating to see because it's really interesting to talk about top-down versus bottom-up processing of attention, which is, so what pulls your attention? What What is the thing that you're going to look at when you're not given directions? So that's color contrast, that's movement or apparent motion happening. Um, that's the edges of the scene. And so when, you, when you're just shown a Where's Waldo and you have no directions or no hints, you start by scanning the edge and you look for bright colors and and what you see in the video well but in a lot of eye tracking studies which is fascinating is you can look at paths of looking you can see not just where they looked for a long time which is a fixation you can look at their scan patterns and how long it took them on those and then you start to see when you introduce a hint how it starts to triage your new attention patterns until you find this thing. And that's so that's what I tend to show with the Where's Waldo. And I think it's a really good example of where eye tracking tells you a lot about how we start to use information. Or even how we read, where we don't read every word. We skip uh, across multiple words and fill in the gaps. Um, eye tracking is, is something that, yeah, we now have two eye trackers actually <laughs> yes. on campus. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, two research nice. grade ones. Um, and it's partially something that is really accessible to students. Uh, it's it's something that if you're if you're trying to ask a, a question where you're just saying where on the scene do you look, that's something that you can do with eye tracking that is it's pretty fun and it's a little bar that goes on the bottom of the computer, costs a lot of money but does some really cool things. <laughs> so, yeah. We have so shout-out to the grant? Yes. Yeah, let's yes. talk about that grant. We should shout-out to that grant. I have our Where's a Meerkat book. Can we do that? Where's Waldo? Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Where's the meerkat? Uh, hopefully the listeners know about meerkats and Sawa. Has, has this come up on a previous She's, episode? I don't know that it has, but Sawa's a fan. Right? Sawa's a yes. big fan of meerkats. Ryan, Ryan is to sharks as Sawa is to meerkats. Yes, I am into meerkats. For a good reason. Maybe yeah. we can talk about it later. <laughs> um, but yeah, all of our all of our research is actually funded by a grant from uh, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, um, and it's the <laughs> go ahead, Sawa. Yeah, and it's an area grant, which means that this grant is specific for the institutions that have primarily undergraduate students, like our institution. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you, Grant. And the, the part of the reason is that they, they like the type of research we do, luckily, and we are very appreciative of that. Um, but also the part of the reason that we are receiving this grant is because we are involving so many undergraduate students, and nice. they are part of our research team, and it makes a big, important piece. A critical part of our research team. Yeah. 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 Right. When how many, like, and I don't expect an exact number, but how many students are you working with on this particular project? As of right now, we have uh, 13 in the lab that we're working Wow, that's amazing. It's a pretty good size, Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so let's imagine a world where the trip to Japan goes the way we hope it does, and that we aren't prevented (laughs) from traveling. How long are you going? What type of work are you going to be doing there? I'm going to be going for a little bit longer, (laughs) but um, 
but we're going to be collecting data, hopefully, at Kyoto University. Okay. And we have collaborators at Kyoto University. There are students there, too. We are going to be working together. This year, it's just、um, Jason and I. But the next following year, we are hoping to have students with us to come and We're getting the projects all up and running again this summer. So, last summer,、um, we spent time at Saitama University, which is an hour and a half north of Tokyo. Hour, yeah. Yeah, hour. There we go.、Um, and we were going to get complaints. I was going <laughs> I, 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 like, to. I have to worry about my exactness <laughs> gosh, here.、So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You <laughs> lost so much credibility there. <laughs>、um, oh, goodness.、Um, but actually,、uh, Saitama is in a city. That's comparable size to Green Bay, right? Or am I really off on this, Sawa? What's the difference here? <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> the population is slightly different.、Um, Saitama has more, and population density is more. But.、Um, you can just say I'm wrong.、Yeah. We're just going to go with Jason's wrong. All right. <laughs> What you're going to notice from this episode is I'm wrong a lot. All right.、Yeah. Okay. So I want to、um, thank you, Salva, for carrying Jason. Yes. The, she, she is carrying me in so many ways. There、right、it is.、Um, so, Saitama is smaller than Kyoto, which is one of the reasons we're、right. going for this, is that、um, it, it's a more direct comparison to Green Bay when we're talking about how kids are being raised.、Uh, so, we started off with our, with our first set of questions that, that derived directly from what we have already been studying. So, things on parents. Things on kids and, and their neural moral and looking at cultural differences. Now we're starting to expand that quite a bit. So we're trying to ask new questions broadly about social cognition and how that differs using EEG, using eye tracking. And so we're starting a new set of studies this summer in Kyoto.、Um, and we're hoping to carry those forward. We'll come back and do that in the US as well. And then next summer, we'll end up starting、nice. uh, another round, probably in Kyoto as well. And that's when we'll bring students over and have them do some testing in Japan and see what it's like. Very, very cool. Do you, I have one question unrelated to this for Sawa, but do you have anything about the grant or anything else? Nope, you're good. All right. Yeah, it's not about meerkats either, <laughs>、okay. but it could be. We'll, is, we'll, is it about carrying Jason? <laughs> yes. We'll have a whole meerkat themed episode down the road.、Yes. But, so, Sawa, you are doing a steam engine talk、yeah. tomorrow night,、mm -hmm. which will be, of course, Once this airs next week, it'll be before that. So, so you don't have to, you won't be spoiling anything for the、yes. listeners, just for me, who's going to go watch. But what are you talking about tomorrow night? So, tomorrow night,、um, the title is God Milk. <laughs> I admit, I didn't understand the title.、Yes. This is part of the reason I'm going, is I want to I understand.、Yeah. So,、um, it goes back to one of the points that Jason brought up earlier is the idea of how,、um, you know, when we talk about parent child behaviors and child development, there's genetic components and not just cultural components. Components. But、um, there's also this idea that the genes and culture do work together and co evolve together. So,、um, the reason why I'm talking about dairy <laughs> is not really I'm talking about the, the techniques. I can't really I, I can't teach any of that,、no. unfortunately. So, if you're going for that, That's not no, the talk. I was going because I thought there'd be free milk. I don't know. I like trust. I can teach you how to milk、yes. a cow if you want the technique、oh, part. Just,、so. yeah. What are you bringing to the table? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, the history behind and why,、um, how that,、um, the cultural practices have changed our genetic components of humans and things、mm. like, for example, lactose tolerance, some people don't have. Some people do. <laughs> and,、um, but it real, it's really specific to the regions. So, in Central,、um, Central Europe, where the dairy farming really started out about 7,000 years ago, over about 80% of people have that 
lactose tolerance. But hmm. in other parts of the world, like Asia, where it's it wasn't the cultural practice, it's um, it's about twenty seven percent of people who have the tolerance. So it's the oh, wow. the cultural practices can really shape our biological aspects and genetic aspects of human beings. Wow, that is fascinating. So I'm still gonna go because that was a nice teaser for for what's coming up. Um, it yeah. sounds great. Plus, strawberry milk is what I've heard is being served. No, probably not. I'll ask. <laughs> I really like strawberry milk. That's a fun fact about me. I know that's weird. I'm Does like that the only come from yeah. pink cows. Yeah. I'm yeah. Really... No, I. What's happening? Right I, now? for the record, <laughs> yeah. For the record, I went to the grocery store, couldn't find strawberry milk. Had to ask for it. They kept showing me things that weren't strawberry milk. I got frustrated. Came home and bought some on Amazon. So I yes. Wow. I really like strawberry milk. It's yeah. a passion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm serious about my, yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, well, with that, I guess any final thoughts, anything else you want people to know before we move into our rapid research? If review? you have children between the ages of three and five and you're yes. listening to this podcast, we would love yep. to have you in the lab. Uh, we are starting up our collection in the U.S. If any of this sounds interesting to you, please contact us. Yes. So what's the webpage? Uh, www.uwgb.culture. Dot edu. Dot edu. Dot edu. Child's Lab. Gotcha. Or just Google Child's Lab UWGB and you yep. will find what you need. Um, we'd love to have you yep. come and help us with our yes. research and see the cool things we're doing. Yeah. Or, or if you're listening in Japan. Yes. yes. <laughs> or if you're listening yeah. into Japan, yes, we'll have yes. research there this summer. Yep. So stay tuned. And we'll include links to the, the lab in the, in the notes. So it'll be there. So, All right. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Do you go mm-hmm. first? Um, I, th- I feel I, yes. I know we switch off, but I never remember who. I think you went last time. Okay, so you guys can stick around and chime in if you've got uh, thoughts. I think on you any should. I definitely research. think we yeah. want to listen to this. Yeah, yeah. this is yeah, the important line. stuff. So our in. our new newest segment is the rapid research review, where Ryan and I pick a um, timely topic and find an empirical article about it, and then present that. So uh, it is. It has been. Uh, crazy coronavirus uh, situation, uh, the world around. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about hand washing. And so this is yours about hand washing. Yes. (laughs) I would high five you right now, but I don't want to touch your hands. (laughs) (laughs) And so maybe we both can talk about hand washing. Uh, And what also made me think about this is that, that the article that I read is a, is a 12,000 uh, oh, It's person. different than mine. Okay. It's a, 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 actually a worldwide sample, a representative multicultural sample of hand-washing behaviors and how shocking it is to me that we, before the last couple of weeks, I didn't really think very much about hand-washing. I mean... It's my practice to wash my hands, you know, like maybe five times a day, maybe like uh, more often than that. And I was also thinking about, I recently went to the dentist and I'm kind of a crazy mm-hmm. dental hygiene person. The, the three people sitting in this room yep. know that I am. I was going to say, you. I, I think yes. you brush your I, teeth more than you wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Um, but I still felt pressure like the week before I was going to this dentist visit to floss my teeth 
way more than I typically do. And it, and it stays at a high rate for about a week after I go to the dentist. And then it starts to be like a, mm-hmm. just a, you know, maybe like an every other day kind of, kind of thing. And I think about, um, the, the research showing that before this coronavirus thing, we just don't wash our hands. Um, and there was gender difference in the, the article uh, that I that I reviewed was the determinants of reported personal and household hygiene behavior, a multi-country study that found that 70% of women and only 50% of men wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. And I'm like- either Ryan or I are in trouble here, so. (laughs) You guys are gross. It's a 50-50 and I'm like, and that is why I'm not high-fiving either of you. (laughs) But it was really interesting uh, thinking about some of the reasons, the determinants of why people don't wash their hands is because they're busy and tired. And I think about when we are most stressed, when we're really busy and um, we're stressed out and we're also tired, is actually the time when we should wash our hands more. But this research found that... um, for the yeah. 12,000 people that they interviewed, that it's actually one of the strongest determinants of not washing your hands. And so uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it is super. And I actually have a solution in my, All right, in my you research. Give no, but I, I want to say I, that is fascinating. And I will be honest and say, so Jason knows this about me. I am a chronic hand washer. So I would actually argue that sort of bordering on the side of almost weird. Then um, we know who the 50% is <laughs> yes. that don't wash their hands, no, apparently. I, you know, it's I'm a statistician. So I know the... It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's possible this isn't a representative sample, but so I am... Um, no, I will... There have... On occasion, when I have been busy, I've actually said to myself, I don't want to wash my hands, but I know that right now is the time when I am most susceptible, that I've actually had the thought that this is when I should. So yes. Bravo. I will also say that touching the handle on the way out is horrifying to me because of that 50%, because I know that half of the people who left the bathroom before me didn't. That's why I open it with my foot. Oh. You should see me. I'm amazing. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just I, kidding. Like the handle I'm, that's up at, yes. at waist yes. level here. That is exactly right. what That is solid. actually way more yes. impressive. Than I, I, don't, the I don't know I'm if just it's kidding. cool to take videos in the women's room, but if, <laughs> <laughs> if you could try and get capture that for us, Sawa, we would appreciate it. All right. So I, too, and this was unplanned, by the way, um, I, too, am going to prey on piece of people's misophobia uh, with today's review. So... Um, uh, as you know, it's only important to wash our hands during a pandemic, right? The rest of right. the time, we don't have to worry about it. Isn't that is that what you just said? I can't remember. Clearly, that <laughs> <Okay>. is. <laughs> That's gross. I don't even like to say that out loud. Um, it, so it is the single best way to prevent the spread of illness. Uh, so I found a 2017 study by uh, Dr. Kenneth Oldfield at the University of Illinois at Springfield. So in the journal Administration and Society, um, he actually identified the single best way to increase hand washing. Do you know what it is? Um, Make it a habit? That would make sense. You know, how we can make it a habit is uh, to have people either think or know that they're being watched. 
So if we can create a scenario where they think or they know that they're being washed, watched, excuse me, not washed. Yes. So, Ryan, you're seeming to have a theme <laughs> to yep. do all your this comments is, about this. So this is why <laughs> on campus I've put cameras in all of the bathrooms. Jason Those are has not mirrors. Jason, my friends. <laughs> Jason has the feed going no, to his. No, no, no. Wow. I feel like uh, this podcast okay. is going to all right. Let's, all right. Let's bring it back. Um, so, no, actually what, what they have advocated for is moving the sink out into the hallway. Mm. Uh, so the sink is not in the bathroom. So when uh-huh. people come out to a public space, there's actually a restaurant in Green Bay that has this setup. I think it's actually closed, probably for health reasons. <laughs> um, no, it is, it is closed. I don't remember what it was called. It's the one down by the marina that... Yeah, so they had yep. their, the the setup was such that the the sinks yes, were out in the hallway. Um, so you came out, and that it that increased it dramatically. It said, uh, and I quote: "The social aspects of hand washing in American restaurants." Oh, sorry, this is the title of the article. It's a terrible title, by the way. Sorry, Dr. <laughs> Kenneth Oldfield, but it, the title is literally about forty six words. The social aspects of hand washing in American restaurants: an administrative approach to reducing public and private health care costs. Uh, I argue that we should consider requiring public eateries place bathroom wash bins in conspicuous locations. Wow. So there you go. So if we want to get to the bottom of this, we need to find a way to make it public. And I think that interesting, I also read in the, in the article that I reviewed about making um, uh, Purell or whatever, mm-hmm. hand sanitizer dispensers not off the beaten path in a corner, mm. but actually like right, right. in the main part yep. of the hallway. And in one of the hallways here at UWGB, we have a hand sanitizer right in smack dab on the, the top of the hallway of one of our most populated mm. classroom wings. And I think I every time I walk by it, I use mm-hmm. that and I've seen a lot more students using that as well. And I think, wow, that's a great, right. Thing that we're doing that we didn't even think about, uh, but mm-hmm. it's a great thing to have it out in the open, not only so that other people are watching you, but also so that you were reminded of it so it becomes more automatic. So we need a person. We're going to hire an intern who's going to stand there. We're going to call him a judger, and they're just going to look <laughs> at people who don't wash their hands or don't use the sanitizer, right. and they're going to shake their heads disapprovingly. <laughs> I mean, and, <laughs> It's live action psychology yeah. right there, right? No, it's just right. like, just right. sort of just yeah. like look at them with a shrug, like, yeah. I'm so disappointed in you. Right. That's a good project for Yeah, <laughs> all right. Let's get on And it's, it's everywhere. I, I read a, a post the other day about a local bakery that has um, samples out and that yeah. somebody took a sample ate it, licked her fingers, oh. and then took another. Oh. And uh, the, the person who was reporting this mm. nearly passed out. No. <laughs> no, that's horrifying to me. Yeah. yeah I've yeah. just stopped eating samples <laughs> for life. All right. Can Any... I add one thing? Yes, please. So I'm an associate editor for Asian Journal of Social Psychology, nice. and there is a, um, a list of publications back in 2004 about SARS and psychological mm-hmm. aspects around. Mm-hmm. So it's more like fear and um, not yes. so much about biology, but psychology around SARS, which is really similar to what's happening now. Mm-hmm. So that might be a good um, place to read yes. more about psychology. Yes. Yeah. I want to put a shout out while we're doing shout outs to other things. <laughs> like um, there's an episode of Code Switch recently that talks about um, racism 
as it's linked to fear of mm-hmm. viruses and fear of illness, that is absolutely fascinating and horrifying and how we often, you know, they say this in the episode, this may not be true anymore, but at the time it was that the, the, the country with the second highest rate of coronavirus mm-hmm. is Italy, but we haven't seen near the reaction um, towards Italians mm-hmm. that have, have we've seen towards mm-hmm. Asians. And so um, it was really, really fascinating. They talked about this historically with Ebola and a fear mm-hmm. of, uh, of African-Americans yeah. and so mm-hmm. on. So fascinating, upsetting stuff. But yes. any other final thoughts as we, gee? I think we just all need to do better. Yeah. We need, we just need to treat yeah. each other better. Jason. We need Sorry. to... <laughs> to take care of ourselves better. <laughs> I'm not even going there. All right. All right. I agree. Yeah. Yes. yes, I do too. Cheers to the hand sanitizer, my friends. Very good. Um, Air high five. Yes. Yeah, if the, the best thing that could come out of this for me is that human beings stop shaking hands with one another. I'm going to say that quite honestly. I'd be thrilled if we just all agreed we're done. To give hugs. Yes. <laughs> yep. I'm understanding. Was, yeah, hugs right. and just a little kiss on the cheek. Yeah, yeah. let's yeah. do that. All right, there it is. Yeah. So, very good. Um, all right, any other kind of closing thoughts from y'all about your research? Anything you want to tell people? We got links to the lab. We got how to get involved. Just that last plug of get involved. Yes. Come join us. Yes. Please, please do. All right. So um, let's see. If you like psychology and stuff, please go and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find the show. Second, go and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Psych and Stuff. G, you are on Twitter. What's your handle? G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. That's Georgina W-D. Very nice. And I am Rye C. Mart, and you can find Psych and Stuff at Psych and Stuff on both Facebook and Twitter. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin. The production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and the engineer for today's show is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees. Special thanks also to our guests, Dr. Sawa Sanzaki and Dr. Jason Cowell. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina wilson Dungis. Keep being amazing.